If you are a C.S. Lewis nerd, as many people are, you maybe know that his favorite author was George MacDonald. He credits fantasy author George MacDonald with baptizing his imagination, especially through the book Fantasties, which was one of Lewis's favorite. After reading MacDonald's descriptions of magical enchanted forests, he said, for example, and these descriptions were written in a way that Lewis found incredibly beautiful, he felt that this sense of enchantment forever spilled out onto Lewis's experiences of real forests. Now, in what way does something parallel happen with religious narratives? How does the story of Jesus, for example, able to change lives and the way we live and move in the world forever? Could it be through the human faculty of imagination? Justin Ariel Bailey approaches these themes in his book, Reimagining Apologetics, The Beauty of Faith in a Secular Age, which is a book that's only kind of about apologetics, uh, at least in the traditional sense of the, of the term. It's really about a kind of anthropology that takes the cognitive function of imagination to be central to our humanity. The imaginative and aesthetic dimensions of understanding then must take the lead in our talking about faith rather than argumentation, which has been the traditional mode of apologetics. Justin A. Bailey is a theologian, author, and assistant professor of theology at Dort University. You can learn more about him at pjustin.com. That's the letter pjustin.com. Justin was also part of Blueprint 1543's Theopsych Initiative. Resources on psychological science from that project are available for free on our website, blueprint1543.org, or at theopsych.com. I'm Sari Martin Concepcion, Director of Communication at Blueprint 1543. I really enjoyed my talk with Justin, and I hope you will too. Yeah, I mentioned this to you in an email that like one of my intensives I took at Fuller was the C.S. Lewis intensive. Okay. And I basically wrote one of my papers for that class on like the same thesis as your book, basically. <laughs> but oh, I just constructed it from C.S. Lewis because C.S. Lewis is kind of known as a kind of apologist, you know? Right. I sort of made it wove an, art, an argument based on like more implicitly does mm -hmm. Lewis value the role of imagination? Cause you know, he's living around that, that enlightenment time where he's got all these people like, you know, throwing their arguments around and he deals with the arguments a little bit, but I think that for him and his own conversion, especially having that imaginative encounter with Jesus was really what did it for him. You know, the, the myth that became true yeah. And I think you probably referenced this maybe in a chapter I didn't read, but the baptizing of the imagination is a phrase that Lewis is Lewis uses in regards to George MacDonald. Yeah. And he I, I actually just finished reading Fantasties, which a lot of people don't care for that much, actually. But for, for Lewis, it was like life changing. And well, I'd love it, to hear what you thought of it, because I yeah, I mean, MacDonald is a hero of mine and I'm always interested to hear what people think of Fantasties. Yeah, did you, I really did liked it. Baptize it. your imagination as well, <laughs> or rebaptize. I haven't actually. Yeah. Well, so I mean, I feel with my own spirituality, my own faith, that uh, the origins of you know my lifelong faith really 
the fantasy literature I read when I was a kid was yeah. really foundational and yeah. did have that effect that Lewis talks about McDonald having on him of like, just the whole world becomes enchanted yeah. based on, you know, reading of the, the, uh, the mythical, uh, enchanted forest sort of makes all real life forests a yeah. little more enchanted, you know, Madeline Langle was another, like I read the whole wrinkle in time series mm-hmm. when I was young and, all the, the Narnia Chronicles and stuff. I'm not as read in Tolkien as a lot of people like me are. I <laughs> just, when I was younger, yeah. it didn't grab me as much, but yeah, those were huge for me and sort of laid the foundation for like a spiritual life, which has followed me forever. And, yeah. and even now as I'm older and I'm engaging with science quite a bit, especially because my job and how science like dialogues with, with faith and thinking about those things, you know, some people might think that a, engagement in science has the ability to sort of de-enchant things for you because mm. it gets in the mechanics. I sometimes get that, but it doesn't have to, you know, if you talk to a lot of scientists who are just in awe of nature, you yeah. know, a lot of them find that sense of enchantment about the world is increases as they get into more detailed research. So it's interesting. I could talk about George McDonald for hours, <laughs> but, um, yeah. you know, uh, in some ways you mentioned Lewis and yeah. people sometimes ask me, well, why didn't you write more about Lewis? And I sort of felt like that work had been has been done many times. Yeah, like the world. And if there was anything more. else I could do with Lewis, you know, I, I don't know if there is anything left to do. Um, yeah. So I was sort of trying to get underneath him uh, yeah. and see, well, what, how did he become how he became? And so that's how I, that led me to McDonald. And then now I've I've fallen in love with him. My, my love for McDonald surpasses my love for Lewis now. Yeah. And so you should listen to that the McDonald chapter. I for sure um, will. In, in the book, which is my favorite chapter, is the one that I think I enjoyed writing the most. And it talks a lot about, about that. But, you know, McDonald has this really interesting conception of the relationship of reason and imagination. Uh, you know, Lewis is famous for saying, you know, the intellect sort of takes things apart, the imagination puts them back together. And I like that. But McDonald's is even better because he says the intellect is sort of like the laborer and the imagination is the architect. Um, mm-hmm. or the imagination is the, the visionary guide that sweeps across the borders in search of, of new space. And uh, the intellect is sort of the plotter, like the person who carries the bags like behind. And mm-hmm. I, I just love that because it really gives a space for both and shows how they, how they need each other and how they work together. Mm-hmm. So that, and, you know, McDonald also is very interested in science mm-hmm. and, and chemistry and in keeping the imagination connected to the empirical. So that's, there's some interesting things with that, but um, yeah. yeah, I could talk about, about McDonald's for yeah. for a long time. But. Yeah, and we'll jump, we'll go to that. But you do talk quite a bit about the imagination is always engaging with the real world, with yeah. the, the worlds that we actually exist in. So you know, yeah. it doesn't it's there doesn't have to be a dichotomy there. But real quick, I wanted to say about Fantasties was I haven't read fiction for a long time. As I get older, I'm like, who has time for fiction? Like you have to read practical things that teach you things, you know. <laughs> so I've fallen yeah. into that trap a little bit. So it was so nice to kind of go back there, honestly, to go back Mm. and to like just being sort of letting yourself exist in this imaginary world for a while. And it's so clear, like this character's spiritual journey, because it's just like, you know, it's such a meandering thing. It's like this happens and then this happens and then this happens. It's a fever dream. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. But if you just kind of have that to your expectation, you know, you're just going to go on this journey with this person and weird stuff like definitely couldn't predict, you know, weird stuff keeps happening and taking you by surprise. Yeah. My only critique is a little bit of a, you know, slightly feminist one, but that's just of the time. It's just the role of like women 
of the enchanted forest are just like, either they're like, (laughs) they fall in love immediately and they're like the most beautiful creature he's ever seen, or it's a witch, you know? (laughs) Yeah. It's sort of that mythic arc archetype, right? That he's he's primarily working with. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, so his career is sort of bookended by Fantasties and Lilith. Um, Hmm, Lilith is his kind of last one that I think is, is, is a, just masterpiece um because okay, he's that. he's read the divine comedy is trying to give you his own version of dante having you know and you if you read it with like lilith and the divine comedy in the backdrop i'm not sure if he quite gets out of the trajectory of what you're saying from sort of the, um, yeah, the feminist nice. critique but mm-hmm. there are some really interesting things that he does you know with that main character of lilith um cool. you know who has a long lineage as well yeah, that, that would be the thing I'd rec- I don't always recommend it to everyone because it is yeah. um, is sort of the capstone of a lot of his other work. And so mm-hmm. he's doing things that are building on. But if you've read Fantasties, then yeah, I don't know. I'd be I'd love to know what you think about it. Oh, yeah, I'm definitely going to yeah. check that out. Very exciting. Well, let's get to your book. Do you think you could just kind of give a little summary or just a summary of your thesis, the thesis of the book? Yeah, so the book is called Reimagining Apologetics, and it kind of puts together these two circles that don't often come together. Um, so the one circle is the imagination, which is sort of this faculty of possibility and desire and exploration. And then the other thing is apologetics, which is the discipline of, that is oriented towards responding to objections to Christian faith. And I'm trying to put them together and say that, you know, crises of faith and doubt, however we navigate them, whether we're moving from a more stable faith to, uh, to, to in the direction of doubt, deconstruction, or whether you are, have been deconstructing or moving towards reconstruction, that that is experienced not primarily in the intellect, but in the imagination, or at least they're experienced simultaneously in both the intellect and the imagination. And so the way that people of faith have tended to do apologetics has tended to be very much sort of top heavy, um, so to speak, which is oriented towards the intellect. And in fact, apologetics in the last couple hundred years has really become a kind of a shrunken version of what it has been throughout church history, uh, along with sort of a shrunken anthropology that we have that tends to favor the intellect. It has tended to focus on defending the truth, right, of the Christian faith. And I'm fine with that. I, I think there's definitely a place for that. And where those objections are, they, they need to have, we need to have good answers to those questions. But I just want to say that, you know, a life of faith is about so much more than just believing truths. And so I wanted to ask, well, what would it look like to do apologetics or to bear witness to Christian faith if the imagination mattered? And so that's what I'm trying to do is sketch a picture of what it could look like to think about apologetics or about bearing witness to Christian faith in a way that takes the imagination into account and doesn't just treat people as, you know, sort of people who are in need of the right information and that'll change everything. Yeah. I think a lot of us have probably had the experience of, you know, apologetics done badly or kind of cringy, you know, or impolitely. So I think your book is a really good response to some of that and then also this, you know, the everyday Christians having sort of this anxiety about it. Um, what if I'm called upon to answer a question about my faith that I can't answer? And maybe that even inhibits people from even talking about their faith at all. Yeah. Which I think that your paradigm sort of relieves some of that anxiety because you learn to speak genuinely about your own faith 
and what it what it does for you, you know? And you know, I honestly really debated whether to call it apologetics or not, because right. could, can that word be kind of one back from the kind of picture that we have of two gladiators kind of on stage yeah. fighting it out? Yeah. And I think that part of that apologetic picture tends to picture faith as this individual achievement, you know? So, oh, I have gotten to this place where I've triumphantly vanquished all of the objections and doubts that I have. And if we think about the imagination, then faith becomes a lot more about community project, a craft, right? Like faith is a craft that we're in, in, engaged in. It's, it's receptive and it's responsive to something that's real, but that we can't control, you know, the same way that people sort of, if you approach faith as more the way that people approach art, mm. yeah, then, then you sort of know, I'm not really in control of this thing. And yet there are practices I can engage in that make me more open to it. And that's really what I'm interested in, uh, in studying, you know, the imagination is the faculty that does that, that explores those possibilities and is able to yeah. even go beyond our normal, yeah. yeah, the things that we can kind of get at with our senses. And I think that most of our life has actually lived on that in that space. And then intellect sort of comes and justifies it, right? And gives us reason mm -hmm, mm -hmm. To, to support it. But we start with the more kind of intuitive, imaginative sense of rootedness in whatever place we are. And then we look for kind of the intellectual considerations to justify it. Yeah. So without getting like too philosophical, because I won't be good at that, you know, the fear some folks might have, and maybe you've encountered this in response to your book, is that like truth just becoming relativized yeah. because there's so much subjectivity to what you're saying. You're talking about responses to art or whatever. So how would you respond to that fear? Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I have these two circles sort of the imagination and aesthetic circle and then the apologetic circle and the people in each circle are suspicious of the other side, right? So mm -hmm. the apologetics people are like, oh, all well, those subjective stuff about the imagination and the aesthetics <laughs> people are like, wait, don't you dare take my art and instrumentalize it, you know, in service of convincing somebody, you know, about, about their faith. And so, yeah, I guess I'll just say that I, I I'm sensitive to that to both sides, right. To the uh, desire to do justice to, to both. And part of it is the way that I, I define the imagination. You know, the imagination is something that we use. It is a unique faculty because it is able to orient itself towards irrealities, towards what is not actually the case, but it does that for the sake of reality, right? We, we kind of explore possibility and detach from what is actual because we believe that ultimately doing this will enable us to grasp the world more securely. And so we are in search of reality. We are in search of rootedness in the real world and the ability to navigate it. And so we are responsive then to the givenness of the world, a world that we did not make, that we are not in control of, though we have agency and participation in that. And so that's where it's sort of that kind of empirical side of that I am res always responding to something in my imaginative work. I'm not just sort of making things up. So the imagination is a strategic and intentional faculty. So it's strategic because we, we imagine to do something that we can't do with any other mode of perception. And then it's intentional, meaning it's always directed towards something. You can't just imagine, right? You have to imagine things. And so I think that that's the way that I'm trying to guard against the subjectivity is that even as we, if we take faith as testimony, 
I'm testifying or as a community, we're testifying to something that is real, something that happened. The subjectivity of our starting point doesn't mean that our ground is subjective. And so right. there's, a di- there's a difference between where you start. So you might start with people's hopes and dreams and desires. That doesn't mean you have to end there. It doesn't mean that they get the final word because there's also this other story of what God is doing. There's revelation, the idea of revelation where God is an other who shows up to speak mm-hmm. in Christ and the spirit and in the scriptures and the church and other people, right? So there's these other people that I can't reduce to myself uh, and their experiences that I can't reduce to, you know, my own imaginative projections. And so those are really the checks and balances for an imagination, which is purely escapist, is that our grasping for rootedness in the world is always going to be dialogical in terms of our relationships with other people, with the community that we're in, and in the createdness of God's world uh, in which we find ourselves. That's so good. Let's talk about Jesus for a second. Or just in the scriptural witness, you have evidence of God's just like extreme variety and willingness to bend to what folks need, you know, the Mm. way that Jesus kind of responds to each person so differently, responding Mm. to their individual desires and longings. And sometimes God needs to talk to someone through a donkey and, (laughs) you know, and so, or the still small voice, or, you know, there's just such a variety in the way that God or Jesus, God, God in Jesus responds to individual people in their subjectivity without relativizing the truth of who God is or who he is. You use the word honoring in terms of like honoring other people's unique longings or something like that in the book. And I really, I really liked that. I really thought that was a very neighborly way to do apologetics. Yeah. It's a hospitality is sort of towards what's going on in people's lives. And that's really grounded on a conviction of just divine generosity and that God is graciously, God has not abandoned his creation to corruption, but that God continues to engage people in all sorts of ways. And like you said, it's not just in Jesus' ministry, but also in the scriptures themselves, they're given to us not as bullet points. You don't have, hey, here's 501 things about God. You know, you have poetry and parable and apocalyptic, all of which genres require imaginative dexterity. You have to actually learn Mm. to train your imagination to be able to get what they're trying to say, right? And if you just Mm -hmm. treat it as bullet points or you try to turn it into another genre, then it's been a failure of your imagination. In your desire to get truth, you actually have missed this very significant layer of truth, uh, which Mm -hmm. is the truth that's found in the way that it engages your imagination. Yeah. You're you're talking about using the imagination to sort of lead you into the life of faith. But once you are a Christian or a follower of Jesus or however you identify, what does that look like using your imagination to, as a Christian, to explore possibilities, yeah. you know? Because I think we all kind of want to have arrived or have like, you know, mm. the certainty and stuff. And of course there's, you know, whatever you hold on, you have your non-negotiables or whatever, but the role, I'm very curious about what the role of imagination in the life of faith looks like as you grow at, in your spiritual journey. Yeah. One of the things I always try to emphasize uh, with my students, especially, cause I have some students who are a little bit suspicious of the language of imagination, maybe rightly so, but that you're already using your imagination all the time, you know? Mm-hmm. And because we are these embodied 
desiring imaginative creatures, our imaginations are always being shaped by all sorts of things, you know, our, our practices, our ritual practices, going to church, not going to church, watching television, not watching television, you know, all the, the media we, we consume, uh, right. just all sorts of things are always shaping. And so your imagination is either going to be, you know, so if I am always sort of dwelling on fear, mm-hmm. this is the example I always use. I hear a noise in my house at night. And what happens in that moment? Well, my imagination supplies a possibility for me. Right. And sometimes it's amazing how fully formed the picture is. Right. Yeah. You like can imagine the person coming to like hurt you and your family or whatever. And that's that's a normal function of the imagination in some sense, because it's always trying to kind of fill in the pictures, the blanks for you so that you can live more securely in the space that you're at. So in, in some sense, the imagination is inseparable from just coping with reality. Um, yeah. But my imagination is either going to be formed by fear and by cynicism and by despair or it's going to be formed by faith and love and hope. And really, you can't hope without imagination because uh, hope is oriented towards this future reality and the Mm -hmm. desire for something to be the case. Mm -hmm. And the idea, I mean, can tomorrow be better than today? And can I be better? Can I be changed or not? Can people change? You know, can this loved one that I have change? And how do I relate to them if I believe they can change or... You know, versus if if I don't, if I think things are always going to be this way. And so that's what I mean when I say it's just sort of the everyday use of your imagination, Mm -hmm. that sense that you have of your space in the world, how you're related to God, how you're related to the people around you. Um, You know, at a certain point, just in the last year, I just, I sort of felt like everything that I was hearing and seeing was almost like conspiring to make me despise my neighbor. You know, and I had to really think about, okay, what are the things, why do I feel constantly like I'm being like placed (laughs) in this kind of shrinking space where I just am having these horrible thoughts about, you know, the people Mm -hmm. who live around me. And, uh, And that's the use of the imagination. And so for a Christian who wants to have their sense of what is possible to be rooted in reality, but not reduced to what we can see, right? Because God is able to do more than we ask or imagine. And um, engaging with always, because when God is in the picture, there is a level of hope and there is a level of possibility that would not have been open to us otherwise. And so that means that to develop, to hope Christianly, not just for like the future that, you know, God will make the world right somehow, but just in our everyday life and everyday situations, the imagination, training the imagination to hope, training the imagination to relate to my neighbor and love Hmm. and to not define them by their worst moments or by their worst characteristics, training my imagination to respond in faith in trust Mm -hmm. uh, towards, towards God and believing that underneath all of the brutality, that what's deeper than brutality is, is beauty. Right. And so, you know, you always have sort of this, you feel like there's this competition, always. which one is deeper, like is brutality really deeper or is beauty really deeper? And Chesterton says, you know, evil is so evil that we think all the good is an accident and good is so good that we think evil can be explained. And so at the end of the day, which one do you, you know, to to live with faith in in a very real way is to say, I'm going to intentionally orient my life in in faith that beauty is deeper than brutality. 
and mm-hmm. the the brutality is sort of spoiled spoiled goodness. It's it's evil that has sort of entered in uh, and and corrupted it, and we are participants of that. Your next book is the imagination and Christian discipleship. <laughs> There, that one's in the pipeline. I'm working on a different one right now, but yeah, the the next one, I've that's that's sort of something I'm thinking is healing the diseased imagination. You know, because that's the thing about, you know, this is Willie Jennings, um, Willie James Jennings, who wrote the, what I think is probably one of the top five books I've ever read, The Christian Imagination, Theology and the Origin of Race, has suggested that it's, the problem is, is a diseased imagination, uh, mm. a diseased Christian imagination. There's something about that metaphor of a diseased imagination that also is very hopeful because yeah. if it's diseased, then it means it's not intrinsic, but it actually could, there could be healing for the imagination. And so, yeah, that's what I'm interested in is how do you heal? How do you heal the imagination? Okay. Yeah. And like not to <laughs> go on an anti-capitalism rant or anything, cause I'm not going to do that, but <laughs> <laughs> The uh, the way that advertising in our culture is so ubiquitous, it, what we're constantly being asked is imagine mm. your life with this yeah, thing, this product. Exactly. Imagine if you bought this, it would, imagine what kind of person you would be if you drank this beer, you know, or whatever the, yeah. or you had this clothing. And so, and you were, you referenced like that feeling of like, oh, I feel like everything's engineered to make me hate my neighbor right now. And yeah. it's true because these algorithms are using artificial intelligence to, to show you content that will evoke an emotional reaction mm. because that's what keeps you in the environment online. And that's what makes the advertising more valuable. And then maybe we can relate this to just your imagination is negotiating the possibilities it's coming up with. And then doing this sort of like we talked about in Theocyc, like system one, system two, like you're engaging this narrative, you're engaging this possibility with your imagination. And then you're negotiating between what you think is plausible based on your experiences and then but if you're getting hammered with one narrative like this type of people is this are this way this group of people is this Mm. way and then you have sort of that narrative and then other narratives that come alongside that would be like oh yeah that's plausible because i've heard these narratives you know i've been thinking about that a lot lately and yeah and what what is the conspiracy theory but this like profound powerful misfiring of collective imagination yeah right Mm-hmm. You know, and so we're already using our imaginations and we're, we're being formed. But the question is, what is what is really shaping us? And is it, yeah. um, you know, if you're a Christian, you want the primary thing to be shaping your imagination is the story that comes to us in the incarnation. Yeah. In life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, that part where you talk about that unique contribution of Christian faith being the, you know, the the symbol of the cross or the that central to, to the gospel is is the event on the cross of the yeah. god dying and resurrecting and yeah that just uh gave me a lot to think about i kind of want to go back to how you how you came to your definition of imagination which you got into a little while ago but i have to get us to engaging some of the science too so sure <laughs> so when you yeah. were like i'm going to write about imagination and this is a cycle. This is a faculty of cognition, you know, yeah. like, how did you approach that? And sure. And I'll just say there's so many different dimensions to the imagination and whether you start in sort of cyclet or phenomenology or philosophy, there's just so many different ways in. And, you know, there's one author that I 
Leslie Stevenson, who said there's 12 irreducible conceptions of the imagination. So, okay, only um, 12, good. Only 12, yeah. She, she, <laughs> she narrowed it down to 12 for us, you know. Um, you know, it's interesting because, yeah, it's important to define the imagination because it, in some ways, is involved in the most rudimentary forms of perception, right? And then at the same time, it is involved in the most strenuous forms of making, right? Of, of poetic kind of making. And so there's maybe kind of this, I mean, that's, that's Coleridge's classic definition is that there's like the primary imagination, which has to do with perception, kind of just making sense of the world. So right now, all of these stimuli are hitting my sensory apparatus and somehow I'm experiencing them as desk, wall, right. you know, microphone, you know, I, I kind of, I, I, it comes to me and my imagination puts it all together into a picture of the world that makes sense. And then on the other side, you have this very engaged and active sense of uh, poesis, of, of making the poetic imagination, which is, you know, sometimes we tend to think of, well, I'm not imaginative. Who's imaginative is, you know, this artist or this filmmaker or, you know, like mm -hmm. people who are just really good at ma making um, and helping other people see, uh, for example. So I was trying to find kind of common threads and also look for an understanding of the imagination that worked for everyday life, um, sort of an everyday imagination. And so what I sort of narrow, kind of narrowed down to, at least from my approach, is really the idea of possibility. Mm -hmm. um, so the subjunctive kind of mood, what, uh, not what is or what ought to be, necessarily, but what might be, right? And um, and even if you, I don't know, I've noticed that some of, even like when I listen to people preach that engage me in a particular way, you hear them a lot of times use language of possibility. Like, well, well, well perhaps this is the case or what if, you know, what mm -hmm. you were experiencing as a burden, God intends as a blessing, you know, like in, or mm -hmm. maybe, you know, if you've ever heard like somebody kind of who's a communicator sharing in that kind of subjunctive mode, what mm -hmm. they're really doing is engaging your imagination. Mm -hmm. And they're not asking you necessarily to either say yes or no to the truth claim, but they're painting a picture of what life in the world would be like if this thing was true. And so that's what you're sort of thinking through possibility and then mm -hmm. that connects to plausibility where you kind of now meet the empirical world so i love watching for example like zach snyder's you know new cut but i don't really mm -hmm. think that a human being can fly right so that i'm sort of exploring the possibilities of superheroes and that engages my imagination and tells me this story that's very human but then as i think about just my embodied everyday life i don't actually believe that people can you know people can fly so <laughs> Um, and so that's sort of how it mediates between actuality and possibility through sort of your embodied, rooted, you know, imaginative engagement with the world. Um, and because it's always a negotiation, that's where you can have lots of, there's lots of space for innovation and for people thinking about things in ways that have not really been done before. Yeah. And so that's where all of that sort of creativity comes from. Yeah. Where poetic making and perception kind of meld together. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's sort of a, a little bit about um, how I got to got mm -hmm. to where I was. I didn't significantly engage the psych literature, so I'm now just starting to do that and mm -hmm. to sort of read the ways that imagination is talked about there. And I'm really intrigued by it, especially with how often 
yeah, the imagination is used, like for example, like in the forgiveness study that that we um, mm-hmm. that we did, where they're like, well, imagine yourself forgiving this person, you know? Yeah. And like, is is isn't that what forgiveness is in some ways? You know, until yeah. you act, you might not even actually have a real conversation with somebody who's who's wounded you, who's hurt you, but there is kind of this imaginative space in which you can enter in and practice something like forgiveness. So, yeah. so that, that's really interesting to me. And all those studies correlating the, well, they call it imaging, right? Where they prime imaging, yeah. the, um, where people are using their imagination. So really dwell on the offense, like think about it for a while and write yeah. about it for a while and then see, does that make you more likely to forgive or less likely to forgive? Yeah. Um, and another thing is, I think you maybe brought up at some point, I have a memory of you bringing up um, like Tanya Lerman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because there's this aspect in which, uh, especially psychologists who study religion, have found that you kind of have to put yourself in an insider mentality to really do justice mm-hmm. to the folks you're studying it. Do you want to comment on some of that? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that's, first of all, that, that book, when God talks back was, I, I love that book. Um, it (laughs) was so fascinating to me because, um, I grew up in communities that were at least adjacent to, if not the exact communities that she's writing about. And so it was kind of like reading an outsider's insider perspective on, (laughs) you know, yourself, you know, Mm -hmm. but even with apologetics, you know, in my book, this is something I try to get at is there's some things about faith that you can really only, only understand from the inside, but apologetics or even just Christian witness evangelism is about reaching people who are on the outside. So how do you help somebody who's on the outside understand something that can only be understood from the inside? And so that's why I'm sort of looking to the imagination to help with that. But yeah, and I've been reading a lot from Tanya Lorman, just some of the different studies that she's done and she isolates absorption uh, which is sort of the self-altering attention. There's the Telegon scale, which is the thing that sort of measures absorption, uh, traditionally measured propensity to hypnosis, uh, but now also has been really valuable for, for tracing lots of other things. And she connects it to a person's talent for religious experiences. And she really tried to get herself to have religious experiences um, through contemplative practices of prayer. Uh, and that was super interesting to me as well. And you could sort of think of imaginative prayer in, in a lot of different ways. In one way, all prayer is imaginative um, mm-hmm. in the sense that you are making present or becoming aware of the presence of something that's not accessible to your senses. Mm-hmm. And yet you also have, similar to these kind of imaging exercises that you might do in psych, psych, psychological trials, you have the Ignatian method of composition of scene where you're imagining yourself in a gospel, a gospel passage and it's saying, okay, you know, imagine yourself standing in the crowd. Like, what are the smells? And that's the other thing too. It's not just visual. A lot of times we think the imagination is just sort of this mental picturing. But when you do composition of scene, you're being encouraged to use all of your senses. You know, what does it feel like? You know, what does it smell like? You know, are there taste? Is there the taste of salt in the air? You know, if you're by mm-hmm. the Sea of Galilee or something like that, which is very interesting because... Um, the imagination craves to kind of be rooted in our sensory experience. If you can't mm. imagine yourself sensing something, you really can't imagine it. Yeah. So there's this, that, that interesting, like very kind of developed use of the imagination that the Ignatian method uses. And then there's also the other side of it, which would be more apophatic prayer exercises where you're trying to almost clear your mind, not just of images, but also of words 
and just be completely Mm -hmm. receptive uh, and resistant. And that Mm -hmm. also is maybe even a more difficult imaginative exercise, Mm -hmm. which is resisting any image from kind of being the primary one in hopes of actually experiencing a presence that transcends it. So I'm really interested in these various exercises of the imagination and the way that that shapes our openness to the presence Mm -hmm. of God. And also whether, you know, Lorman does this as sort of an outsider, whether commitment changes the experience. So whether you're sort of, okay, I'm willing to entertain this uh, for the sake of the experiment versus I'm committed to this. I want this to be true. You know, I want to encounter God and how that changes the experience. And then also just does doing this as a Christian, is that different than doing it as a Buddhist or as a Sufi? Mm-hmm. You know, because Lorman did Christian prayer practices and experienced Christian meaning. Mm. Um, she describes her experiences in terms of Christian meaning. So how does sort of your yeah, frameworks that you bring to the experience shape the experience? So lo- lots of interesting things about that, you know. For sure. Um, and also, I'm interested in the practice of mindfulness, which is sort of mm-hmm. caught on as an imminent sort of contemplative, contemplative prayer. Mm-hmm. And whether that is, I guess, for lack of a better word, thick enough, because there isn't necessarily like this metaphysical weight to it, like there is a Christian story. And yet you have all these similar practices of training your imagination, training your attention. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, that's a lot of things, but those are the sorts of things that I'm, I'm interested in right now and that I'm, I'm working on understanding uh, with the imagination right now. I resonate with your, your kind of call for, for everyone to just sort of realize that you're always imagining, you're always using your imagination and your imagination is going to be up for grabs by the world and different environments that you find yourself in and dialoguing with your imagination and shaping you in different ways. So this sort of mindful, this mindful grasp of, of that fact. And then that assertion that God works through the imagination, that God wants to communicate through imaginative practices and exercises. Like, I think I'm, I have those similar instincts and the mindfulness practice I have found to be very helpful in that and like training, training the attention, because otherwise it feels like your imagination will just go wherever, <laughs> like you're almost out of, yeah. you, you lose your yeah. agency in it almost, you know, where you find yourself yeah. wandering, find it wandering for hours and whatever grabs your attention or possibly worries, worries a big one, right? Like some people are more prone to worry about the future. Some people are more, more prone to replay the past, you know, and mindfulness is very much a call to, you know, be, be present, you know, so. Yeah. yeah. And that's the interesting thing too. You know, one of the things about Lorman's work is it does tend, because it's very interested in absorption, it tends to emphasize intensity of imaginative experience, you know, which it strikes me that there's lots of people who pray who don't really have that proclivity to absorption. You know, you pray as almost this, it's more of the integrative and coherent, like the function of the imagination that's, that's trying to make sense of experience yeah. Uh, rather than necessarily that is kind of having this very rich sense, mm-hmm. you know, sensory experience of God. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And th- so there's definitely a sense that part of what I'm interested in is, I mean, if you're a Christian, I mean, who doesn't want to have more vibrant experiences of God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet so many people 
don't have those experiences and yet don't give up faith. They continue to pray and they continue to move forward even in the midst of, of not having sort of the imaginative payoff. And so I'm interested in that, that as well, you know, what is it that, what is that sort of more structural, you know, praying the hours or something like that doing to your imaginative experience of the world versus yeah, a a prayer that is really seeking that affirmation in Mm -hmm. in the imaginative encounter with God. Mm Mm-hmm. And I, um, I really like the anecdote you shared in the conclusion of your book. You talked about your wife being questioned about your choice to raise your children Christian. And then that yeah. seemed to be restricting their agency in some way. They should just be able to choose whatever religion they want when they grow up. And the response was something like that faith is actually a, a brings freedom and is a gift that you're giving your children as your perspective. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah, you're getting it right. Yeah, it was a friend my wife's friend at work who, you know, they were at a place where she could ask that, which would be a very invasive question if you didn't know somebody already. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was, is very much like, why are you raising your children with faith rather than allowing them to choose what they want to believe for themselves? Mm-hmm. And of course the frame there is that faith must be constrictive and mm. rather than liberating, you know, that it mm. could, it would only be experienced as sort of a prison cell rather than actually something that opens up all of these possibilities, which is what I want to say, which I was trying to say with, with the cross, the cross is both the thing that, that we have to humble our imaginations before, because this is, this too is a work of human imagination. It's the worst thing that humans could dream up. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet the cross also lets us know that, that there are possibilities because of God's work that take the worst thing that humans can do and turn it, and turn it for our good. And so this is to give my children this hope, right? Especially in a world that is full of fear, you know, as, you know, as far as, you know, the next 20, 30 years and things like that, there's lots of reasons for fear. There's lots of reasons to worry that legitimate reasons, you know, to worry whether it's more pandemics or, you know, Mm -hmm. climate related things or, you know, all of the different things that could go wrong. Mm-hmm. what better gift could I give them than a hope that is not rooted in the limitations of human imagination? Mm. Um, and really the thing that has allowed Christians, not just in America, but Chris, Christians all over the world to be in all sorts of difficult situations and yet have a hope that is bigger than that the parameters of that situation. Yeah, I've been thinking kind of lately, I think it was some of like Bill Newsom's talks from the third seminar where he's talking about Mm -hmm. free will and stuff. And just sort of in the real world, uh, the connection between love and freedom, where in a very real way, if you're well-loved, you flourish and you have more Mm. of a sense of agency and possibilities. If you're just just on a human level, you know, like if you're well-loved by your caretakers or or whatever, or by a church community or something, you flourish and you have more freedom and more options in life. And you can imagine more possibilities because you're not in a scarcity mindset or a survival mindset or something like that. But how much more so like if you, if God's love is real to you, then how much more could that also just in a very, like in, in a practical sense, in a very like real lived sense, like it offers such, um, such freedom, I think. Um, yeah. Just to piggyback to what you said. Love that. 
Well, anything else you want to add? What else are you working on right now? You said something else is in the lead right now. What are you working on? Yeah, right now I'm working on a manuscript called um, Your Interpretation is Your Life, uh, which Mm. is a book with Baker Academic. Mm -hmm. That's the tentative title right now. We'll see if it it remains. I I really like it right now, but you know how titles work. But basically saying, you know, know, your interpretation of, of culture or of scripture or of whatever is happening is not really what you think about it. It's what you actually do, how you live, the life that you craft in response to all of these things. And so this book is, it's, I'm trying to write a short book that you could give to seniors and college seniors who are graduating and kind of going out to, to do a job to help them navigate theology and culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it looks at culture through six different lenses so through meaning, the lens of meaning, the lens of power, the lens of ethics, the lens of religious experience, the lens of ritual, and the lens of aesthetics, and then tries to nice. kind of give an, a non-reductive approach to thinking about culture and the way that culture shapes us and the way we shape culture uh, in response in response to it. So I'm trying to write a short book that is accessible, but also, you know, scholarly. So it's... It's one of those things where it's uh, about 40% done um, wow. and we'll see, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. That sounds great. But that's my current project. Yeah. Cool. Cool. I wondered if you had an answer to this question. It's okay if you don't, but if you could see more psych studies, if you could just be in charge of some psych studies, what would you, <laughs> <laughs> what would they be? Like what empirical questions would interest mm. you? Yeah. Like I said, I, I feel like I, I'm not even, I don't even know enough to be dangerous yet. You know, I mean, I, I'm still kind of so new to this um, and to the way the questions are asked and to it's, and it's so interesting just how careful, you know, theologians, we just make these massive rhetorical statements and just the care and the narrow, narrow, narrow scope, you know, of the mm-hmm. claims that are made. Yeah. I just, I'm learning, I'm learning so much from that, you know, and realizing like, just like Justin Barrett says, like, there's a lot of times where theologians make these empirical claims, you know, like, or these rhetorical Mm -hmm. things that can be empirically shown or, you know, and I think that's, that's chastened me in the way that I've done theology and, and has helped me to think of what sort of things would be helpful. I would be really interested just because of the work I'm doing right now Mm -hmm. on studies of prayer practices um, mm-hmm. Similar to what Lorman has done, but not necessarily looking to study absorption um, mm-hmm. as much as some of these other other ways that prayer functions in the life of a believer. So not a prayer that is seeking to hear God's voice, um, mm-hmm. which is you know what she's really interested in is these experiences we have of God becoming real so that it's almost like God is in the room with you. Um, mm. And it strikes me that that is part of what Christian prayer is, but there's all these other elements to Christian prayer. And so I'd be interested in studying prayer practices of various sorts, like I, like I enumerated yeah. earlier and seeing how each of these prayer practices sort of shapes yeah. people's understanding of their faith yeah. and what commitment what do people- does to it. Yeah. All of those sorts of things. And can we, there have been studies that show that participation in these kind of imaginative training exercises increases empathy. So empathy is connected to it openness to experience is connected mm-hmm. to it. But I'm interested in, you know, some other things, you know, like do people actually experience God or do they mm-hmm. understand themselves as experiencing God, especially if they didn't think they were going to, you know, I mean, I, yeah. that's, I, as, as a person of faith really who, who wants 
to understand religious experience and who obviously, you know, who also wants to have religious experiences, totally. wants to have a real, a real sense of God myself totally. and wants my children to have that and my students to have that. I'm, I'm very interested in structural conditions and things like that. And uh, yeah, so those are the sorts of things that I'm interested in from a psych. Have you read yeah. uh, any of, or engaged with any of Sarah Lane Ritchie's work? I, yeah, I read a few, um, part of her dissertation and uh-huh. the stuff on psychedelics is so, is so interesting. Spiritual, you know, she calls it spiritual technologies. That's correct. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> and I find it so kind of fascinating. I think at one point she makes the, the, the claim or she says that maybe if you can get here through psychedelics, you can get here through, you know, contemplative prayer practices, um, and I think that's so interesting. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And something that's reported a lot with psychedelic experiences and then also with very experienced practitioners of meditation is right. no longer fearing death. I mm. think that is so interesting. And you mentioned mm. that that came up in your book and that it yeah, immediately Sarah made Coakley. me think of, yeah. yeah, Sarah Coakley says that, right? And then that immediately made me think of this uh, this research about about psychedelics and meditation practices. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting when you get into some of that stuff, because obviously the, all this, these practices we do with our body, you know, whether we're, we sing, we pray, you know, it's all, right. it's all engaging the body. So hence the term technologies, even dimming the lights in the worship right. service could be yeah. considered a spiritual technology, whatever gets your focus and attention into yeah. um, this, the spirit of worship. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time, Justin, but really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk about this stuff. Yeah, for sure. It's been a really good conversation. Mm -hmm.